Well, when we talked about this celebration <clears throat> a few weeks ago, Guy uh, asked if I would bring something, and there was something that's been on my heart. It's not uh, a new word as such, because it's an ad- adaptation of a word I brought here to our church, but I, I do believe it is for us all by broadening it out. I believe there's some general principles in it that God wants us to hear. Before we read that passage, I just want to put a little bit of background in. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we're not going to read it, verses 1 to 11, makes clear that what happened to Israel in the Old Testament, particularly what happens under Moses when they come out from Egypt and go on towards the Promised Land, that what happened then is an object lesson for us, the church in the New Covenant. There are things there for us to learn from. These are not just nice ideas or preacher's points. They are biblical types. Now, you can't say that about absolutely everything. But that era, that period is very uh, instructive for us. There are a lot of warnings for us, things to avoid. There are a lot of challenges and encouragements. There are a whole um, range of things that we can learn from those uh, years and what Israel experienced under Moses. And now we in the New Covenant under Jesus come into such a fuller and more complete expression of it. What they saw on a small scale and in some ways in a physical sense, we to some extent see in a big world scale and spiritual, uh, in a spiritual sense. Now one aspect of their life, the children of Israel in that time, was that they were a pilgrim people. They were a people who didn't belong in the environment of the wilderness they were in. They were in an alien environment moving through towards a place that God was taking them to. And they had to trust God and let God lead them and guide them through to that place. They'd been set free from slavery, but they were not at their destination. They had a long way to go, actually, at first. They had many things to go through before they would get to the place where God wanted them to be. Now, I believe this is true of us as a church and churches. I believe Christians generally, we are a pilgrim people. We don't belong in this world. We're in what is in effect a wilderness. We're in an alien environment. We're citizens of heaven and we're living on earth and moving through the environment around us. We've been released from our slavery to sin. We've been released from the dominance of Satan in our lives, from Egypt, if you like. We've been set free from that slavery. But we're still moving through towards the place where God wants us to be. We're not yet at our final destination. Now, at a deepest level, that's true in the sense of the big picture that we're not yet home with Jesus. We're not yet in glory, you could say that for individually, but actually more sort of eschatologically, if I can say that, I'm sure I can just about say it, I've just done it, that's quite clever, eschatologically, I'll say it again to show I can say it, that we're not yet at the new heavens and the new earth. We've not yet arrived where history is going. History is going to the return of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth being set up. And that's the big picture. And we're pilgrims heading towards that. And the churches are people on the move towards that. But I actually believe that there is a more short-term application, which is quite valid. I think you could almost apply these lessons in every generation, but we can certainly apply them in our own generation. 
and I think we can find a lot of evidence for what I'm about to say, that the church in the United Kingdom is not yet where God wants it to be. I believe there is a very clear prophetic sort of roadmap, to use that more modern phrase that's sometimes used by politicians about diplomacy, but there is a very clear roadmap that, that many of us have heard and, and lived with for perhaps decades, I have, that God has set his church on a course to, to achieve something, to move into a promised land, to move to a place, and the promised land wasn't a place of peace necessarily, it was a place of battle, but it was a place of outstanding victory, taking ground for God, seeing huge demonic strongholds, huge enemy strongholds like Jericho crash to the ground and establishing God's ways in that previously destitute pagan area called Cana. And God had a purpose to take Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. They came from somewhere to go to somewhere. Now, I think in our day, we generally in the church have heard many prophetic words in recent decades that God is going to take us to revival. Now, that word can mean all sorts of things, but I think in simple terms it means this, seeing huge numbers of people saved. Amen? Do you understand? That's what I understand revival to mean. I know it can be used differently in different parts of the world, but it can be used to refer to lively meetings sometimes in, I think, America, and sometimes the terminology is a bit loose. But I think we classically see revival as impacting our world in a significant way. Actually seeing enemy strongholds shaken. Actually seeing ground very qualitatively taken for God. And I believe here in the UK, here in Hampshire, in Dorset, if you like, here in our cities and our towns, there is a lot more to be done than we've yet seen. We are not yet where God wants us to be. Not at all. We've come out, but we've not yet really come in. Now we have some great experiences, times of worship, songs are being written, Holy Spirit's moving on us, but we're actually looking for far more than we've yet seen. Are you? I am. I'm very, at one level, dissatisfied. Now, actually, with the perspective of 30, 40 years, I can say God's done amazing things in the church. We're in a very different place from where we were even 10 or 15 years ago, and certainly 20 or 30. But actually, out there, they hardly know we're here still. A few a growing few, are saved and coming in and it's getting a bit more substantial. But the culture hasn't changed. The strongholds haven't really come down, have they? It's as like the Jerichos are as happy as ever. And actually I believe God wants to take us far beyond where we are now. We're looking for a major impact on our culture in our day, aren't we? In my day and generation, I want to see it. I've had prophetic words about being a Caleb and a Joshua. Well, that's lovely. But I, I, and I am encouraged by them, and I do pray for them. But I want to see, I like Caleb, I want to stand on the mountain in the promised land. <laughs> now, the promised land isn't going to be the end of battle. I want to, I, I, you see, sometimes promised land is, well, you know, is it heaven, you know, when I get across Jordan? Well, there's battle after battle. And, and there's some failures, AI and others. So it's, it's about being in a different place. Instead of sort of just 
surviving in the wilderness, just having the amazing miracle of your shoes not wearing out and the amazing miracle of manna every morning and of water from a rock. Oh, wonderful. But actually, we want to be actually seeing Jericho's come down and actually seeing territory occupied for God and things changing in a substantial way. You can't do it any other way other than seeing large numbers of people saved. And large and effective churches, if you will, thousands of churches, the churches of thousands. That's what you need to see. I believe God will speak to our local communities through local churches. Funnily enough, in an age when there's so much media and so much uh, stimulus and information through the internet, I believe all of those things are valid, but I believe the real impact will be effective, vibrant, growing local churches that really rattle the cage of the particular strongholds and principalities around your area, that really do some business, really see some leading sinners saved, like it does in every classic revival, really upset some of the local villains because some of their, um, you know, people they rely on to take their drugs and and make them rich get saved and suddenly they haven't got any source of income and they get cross. That sort of thing happens in revivals. And we've got to see it on the ground in our cities, towns and villages. I believe it is part of a long-standing prophetic call that we are to see thousands of churches, just we new frontiers, who are part of a bigger thing. I'm not saying we're the whole thing at all. But let's, we're us tonight. Let's talk. God's talked to us about thousands of churches and churches of thousands. Now, in this passage that we're about to read... It's a good point in the history of Israel for this. Everything's okay. There's positive here. They're about to move forward towards that goal of the promised land, the Canaan. There are, in fact, going to be disappointments around the corner. Sadly, in the chapters that follow, they blow it. I'm not going to follow that tonight. That's not what I'm here to look at. They actually weren't starting out to blow it, nor was anybody. God, and if, if you can use these terms, which you can, about the God of the Bible, God doesn't want them to fail. He's expecting them to succeed. Now, when they do fail, he can handle it, and his greater purposes are, are, are worked out, and that generation lose out, and another generation under Joshua make it. But here, God and they are not expected to fail. God is telling them what to do, how it's going to work. They're getting ready to move and they're about to go off. It was not inevitable that they failed. Having said that, it was not inevitable that they succeeded, as history showed. There is this interesting dynamic in the whole Bible between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's there. And you can duck and weave and say, I'm a hyper-Calvinist or I'm an Arminian and all the rest of these Indian thingies. But actually, in the end, the Bible's got both. And this is a classic example, this story. There is no way God is saying, I actually want them to fail and not go. They're going for it. And yet they blow it. But that is not inevitable. They could have succeeded. We're to be challenged and warned. It said again, I say, 1 Corinthians 10:11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. We are the ones who are here to see the, the big story, the fulfilment of the things that were just almost in shadow here. So I believe we can learn from this. I believe God wants us, the church, the churches, to succeed in what he's called us to do. 
I don't believe God does want us to just wander in circles in the wilderness. He didn't want them to, and I don't think he wants us to. So let's look at how they started off and at some of the keys to getting to where they were meant to get to. Let's read from verse 15 of chapter 9. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's orders and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days, or a month, or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Let's read on. The Lord said to Moses, make two trumpets of hammered silver and use them for calling the community together and for having the camps set out. When both are sounded, the whole community is to assemble before you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. If only one is sounded, the leaders, the heads of the clans of Israel are to assemble before you. When a trumpet blast is sounded, the tribes camping on the east are to set out. The sound of the second blast, the camps on the south are to set out. The blast will be a signal for setting out. To gather the assembly, blow the trumpets, but not with the same signal. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to blow the trumpets. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you and for the generations to come. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, Sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. On the twentieth day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of testimony. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and travelled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. Right, I want to look at three things that were important for them and are vitally important for us as churches to understand how God leads us to where he wants us to go. Now, this can be broad about us as a church and churches in the UK, but I believe it is also about us individually as churches as well with the purposes God has for us. I want to talk about supernatural presence. I want to talk about spiritual authority. And I want to talk about silver trumpets. And I'll try not to be too long, but I want to catch you up in something. Give your attention, please, to it, because I want God to speak to you prophetically out of this tonight.
First of all, I want to talk about supernatural presence, which is what is really covered in chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. Really, the whole way Israel operated was pretty odd if you think about it. Here is a nation of three million people and they follow a cloud. They follow a cloud. Now, normally nations in this time had a king who strategized and planned and bossed them about and told them where to go. But Israel didn't have a king. They were a theocracy. They got their direction from God. How? They followed a cloud. You just imagine uh, an Israelite and an Ammonite, I don't know, and a a Malachite and a Moabite having a drink in a pub and discussing how their kings kings were like. Like you might, or people might, about their boss at work. You know, and they're all having a bit of a moan. Our king, but he's fair, he's a bit tough. If you disagree with him, he chops your head off. But he's fair, he's fair. You know, and he does it once. And, you know, he's, he's all right, but, you know, he's a bit straight and he does this and that. What's your king like? Well, our king's like this. And, oh, well, ours is a bit of a bore. Ours is a bit, he's only interested in himself. Ours is a bit dithery, actually. He doesn't make his mind. So they're all talking. Now, the Israelites are very, very quiet. And they say, well, what's, what's your king like then? Is he any good? How's he got you into this desert then? Where's he taking you? And the Israelite goes, um, uh, uh, <coughs> actually, we don't have a king. <coughs> don't have a king. <coughs> You don't have a king? Well, how do you know where to go then? How do you know when you're to, you know, go out to war? How do you know where you're supposed to be going? <clears throat> uh, we follow a cloud. <laughs> what? We, uh, we, <clears throat> we follow a cloud. You know, which cloud? <laughs> There's quite a lot in the sky, mate. You know, what, what do you mean you follow a cloud? Now, it wasn't actually any cloud, as you know. But it was a cloud. How do you describe to the pagan that you follow a cloud? How do you do it? Now, it does sound daft and hard to explain. But actually, the cloud was the active presence of God himself amongst them. They they had God amongst them. He was their presence, the presence, I beg your pardon, of God with them. That was amazing. No other nation on the earth had God with them. And so what sounded stupid to anybody else was an incredible privilege. But boy, was it hard to describe. Boy, was it hard to make sense of if you were talking about it. You know, we are a similar people. I believe the cloud is a type of the Holy Spirit. When you read 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about these people being baptised in the sea and the cloud. And I think new covenant believers are baptised in the water and spirit. And actually, churches are led by the Holy Spirit, aren't they? Christians are led by the Spirit. But you try and explain that, and it's hard to get hold of, isn't it? But we do not just follow human instructions and orders. We are a people going somewhere and the person or the presence of the person who's taking us there is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit amongst us. Now that is hard even for us sometimes to explain. How do we know what we're doing? I lead a church. I'm part of a church leadership. I have been for many years. And, you know, all right, this church bought this building. 
But actually, we've got another building, and, and, and you know, and which we can't sell for a variety of reasons. And you know, if you were an outside person, you might say, "Well, why exactly did you buy that? And why was your strategy there and strategy?" There? Now, in a way, some of it doesn't sound very sensible. God told us to do it. I wasn't here ten years ago. God clearly led the church and miraculously provided the money to buy it on the first in one Sunday. An incredible story. But actually, even though it's exciting, it's hard sometimes to quantify. How does God lead you? Sometimes it's prophetic words, inner witness of the Spirit, both of those sometimes. But then you listen to advice from others. You look at circumstances. Things open up for you. You are part of a wider movement with apostolic oversight. And that can bring strategy, like Chris and Life Church planning into Southampton. But a few years ago, you weren't expecting to be doing what you're doing now, were you? And if you think about how you got led to that, and I can think of things like parts I played in it and dreams you had and things there, and even some sort of strategic thinking about the centre of Southampton, it's a combination of things which is quite hard to describe. And yet you know God has done it, don't you? We've got to realise, if we're going to get anywhere, we've got to stay charismatic, brothers and sisters. We've got to stay led by the cloud. And it's sometimes really hard. Clouds don't have five-year sort of plans, do they? Well, at least not that they let us know. Now, I'm not advocating chaos, but there was an element of real flexibility required to follow this cloud. And I think it strikes a chord with us. If you look at it, This cloud determined when they moved. Look at verses 20 to 23. I mean, it makes me smile personally. Look at it. Sometimes the cloud was a few days. Let's not read it all. Verse 21. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening to morning. That must have been a rotten day. I mean, you just settled in the morning and by the evening you were moving again. And sometimes it was overnight. Sometimes it, it, look at verse 22, two days, a month, or a year. And when it, now that's all right for you and I reading it, but we're gonna, we're gonna be in some form staying away from our house at Accelerate. We might be a caravan, we're praying for a caravan. But I am, I am not, we're, we're believing God for a caravan, but I am not a brilliant camper. I've done it all my, Married life, because uh, we've been going to Bible weeks until they stopped. And, and I'm not okay. For me, this sounds like an utter nightmare. You know, you, you camp, and the next day, the jolly cloud moves again. And sometimes two days, but then sometimes a month, and I'd be trying to fox it. I know I'd be trying to beat it. So, right, I know we are not going to unpack, Marion. Don't unpack anything. We're going to live out of a suitcase, because that thing will move in a day so's time. One month, two months, living out of a suitcase. Three months, four months, ten months. Mary said, can I stop living out of a suitcase? No. Oh, all right then. You unpack and the next day it moves. You know, you could just, you could just sense it. Because you just didn't know there wasn't up to a point. There was no order to it humanly. And, and you know, this is God's presence leading his people. I'm not making a, a light. I, I want it to be light, but I'm not mocking. I think this is the reality that sometimes you just feel God move very quickly. Sometimes he seems to linger and linger and linger. A year. Sometimes a year in one place. And you know, some of the places you stopped would have been nicer than others. Some of them would have been a nice oasis. You thought, oh, I hope we stay a long time here. Oh, just four days, off we go. 
And then sometimes you stop in one of these more barren areas where you have to keep hitting the rock to get the water. And, and he seemed to stay there for ages. And you couldn't always work out probably why. But that is how God works. We are a spirit-led people. Don't be frightened or put off by the fact that there will always be this sense, this humbling sense that God is in control. Amen? You won't, we won't get to the destination any other way. We can't just get our maps out and our, our compasses and our, and our sort of, I don't know, sat-navs or whatever you like. And we go, you know, in the end, we can know rough, we know where we're going, but I tell you what, Christian life is more like a game or a war. It's very hard. In a football game, hey, Spurs won this afternoon. Ah, I'm a Spurs supporter. I was born in Tottenham. And I have not been able to enjoy a win for about 15 years. So indulge me. (laughs) Indulge me for a moment. Oh, it's wonderful. Right. I've enjoyed that. Now, in a football match, you can't have a plan that we will score three goals in the first half hour. Like, like that. You can have a plan we're going to attack. You can have a plan we're going to go out and score goals. But in the end, it's, there's so many variables, aren't there? Now, now, the Christian life and church life is a bit more like that. It's like, you, 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 you can say, you can't, you know, like a war. When, they, when the war, Second World War started in 1939, they didn't have a plan, we'll win this by 1945. You d- that doesn't work like that. You want to win. You don't want to lose any people. You don't want people to be killed, your soldiers. But you just have to fight and press to win. And, and, and that's more like church and life, except we're also led by the Spirit. But I'm giving us the dynamic of it. And we need to know it's always going to feel like that. It's going to feel a bit like being led by a cloud. But if it had only been led by a cloud, it would have been absolute chaos. Can you imagine three million people all deciding what the cloud was doing? I mean, you could see the thing was moving, but if you're over on the east or the west, you've got a totally different perspective. I think it's moving left. No, it's moving right. I think it's shaking. It's going. No, it's not. It's settled. Now, you know, what is happening, we all can see something's happening, but we all have our own opinion. So then you need to come on to the second important thing. Spiritually being, uh, spirit, sorry, spiritual authority. Supernatural presence is what there. We, we're a people with the Spirit of God. But we also need spiritual authority. And look at verse 23. At the Lord's command they encamped, at the Lord's command they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. says the same thing in verse 13. When they, and this is an interesting balance. You do need to hear it. When they were being led by the cloud and by the presence of God... They actually needed to be more sensitive and respectful to spiritual leaders than if it was a human institution alone. Because there was so much opportunity, if you like, for chaos, as I've indicated. So although you're being led supernaturally, you need a respect for those who God chooses to give authority to in your company and your community. Now this is not a pitch for heavy leadership. Because spiritual leadership can only work if the people receive it and sort of honour it and obey it from their perspective. We are not allowed as leaders to lord it over people. But actually this whole thing only works if you take notice of spiritual authority. Because in a strange sort of way, the very dynamic of following a cloud 
means that those who are spiritually appointed by God to bring order as you move forward need to be seriously respected and obeyed. Amen? Because that's what happens here. Spiritual leadership is a gift from God. And actually, what went wrong with these people, and if you read the later chapters, 11, 14, you'll find out, what went wrong is they began to not take any notice of Moses and Aaron and despise them. And that's one of the major things they got wrong. Now, Moses wasn't like an Ammonite king that I was talking about earlier. He was quite different. He didn't just have his own ideas, telling people what to do. He was interpreting and explaining what God was doing. It was like he drew the threads together. We can all see the clouds moving, but he brought order to it and he explained what we did when the cloud moved and how it was going. And if you like, he gave a bit of definition and direction to it. He brought leadership, guidance. Actually, he led to places of provision, food and water and protection in an alien environment. And Moses and Aaron themselves had to be totally submitted to God, which is a challenge for leaders. And when they weren't, they were quite seriously punished by God. Moses never got to the promised land because of his failure on one notable occasion. And so actually, there is a serious dynamic to this where the leaders are very answerable to God. And we know of situations, I know painfully of some, where leaders have let people down and not done well. I've heard of one very, very recently in a situation not close here. But, and, and, and I believe that they will be answerable to God for that because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a serious thing to mislead people. But the other side is those who lead with godly obedience are to be respected and followed. And in the New Testament, these sort of principles are reinforced. You can think of many scriptures that do that. Everyone, hopefully, will see that the cloud is moving But actually, we need order and guidance about how we follow what we believe God is saying. And it's Moses that does that. And hopefully that happens in your situation where the leadership God's given you in your church will bring bring sort of strategy and direction and need to show that this is how they see God moving. They want to hear prophetic words. They want to hear what you say. If they're good leaders, I believe they'll take heed to the body because God will often speak through the body of Christ in different ways. But in the end, they need to lead. They need to say the cloud is moving. And this is how we move when the cloud moves, which is what Moses does here. He gives them instructions on how to lead. So we need to trust and follow spiritual leadership if we are going to get to where God's taking us. But bear in mind, they also are following the cloud with us. And so they too have to live with the fact that they told you all to camp yesterday, and now today they're telling you to break camp because God is clearly moving on. They've got to live with that as well sometimes. And we've got to balance that together so that we can all see the clouds moving and yet we're looking for direction from them. This this is a very important point. I want to linger for a moment. Church, you know, I know you know, you probably wouldn't be here tonight if you didn't know this, but church is not just attending somewhere on Sunday mornings. It's being part of a community of people who are committed to one another and committed to the spiritual leadership that they're under at that time. You might not stay in that church all your life, I understand that. Of course, things change for various reasons, usually positive ones, move on. People were planted into Southampton from our church and they now come under the leadership there. So these things happen in a most positive way. But while you are where you are, you are committed to that body and you're committed to that leadership to help them to follow the cloud. 
and to say, we want to follow the cloud with you. We're not just got our own little agenda. Like you can imagine, some of these Israelites might say, this is a really nice oasis, I don't want to leave it. When the cloud moves, Moses, hard to you. We're going to stay here with our little palm tree and our little oasis. Now, actually what would happen was you would only enjoy it for a short period of time because the story here is that those who were stragglers were picked off by the Amalekites. So you might be sitting at your little oasis saying, ha ha, they follow that silly cloud and that stupid Moses. Ha ha, we've got a nice little oasis here. We've got dates in the palm trees and you've got an Amalekite's arrow in your back before long as well. Because that, that is how it, you, you need to keep together. This is still enemy territory. We're aliens here. We're not, we're not in friendly country. God is leading us through a wilderness. And actually, all sorts of things can go wrong. And there's an enemy out there. And one of the big things we need is to stick together. I think one of the sobering facts of church discipline, when people eventually sometimes are put out of fellowship, in the, old, in the, sorry, in the New Testament... One of the sobering facts is that is seen as, as being handed over to Satan. I, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's like going out and be, he's given a free hand on someone. When you think in our culture how many Christians think it's great to not belong to a church. Oh, it's great to be a free floating around person. Actually, you're saying it's great for me to wander about for target practice for the devil. You're out there unprotected, vulnerable, and you think it's great? I mean, it's actually seen as discipline in the New Testament. (laughs) It's discipline to not be allowed to be a committed member of of a local body. That's actually a punishment, as it happens, and you think it's a great idea. Now, actually, we need to understand these things because these have got a spiritual dynamic to them. We need to belong to a body. Changes do happen. You do make moves, I understand that, but you need to know which body jesus christ has led you to to be committed to because we move together with others that's how we go through the desert okay so there was supernatural presence leading them there was spiritual authority and finally these were these mysterious and wonderful silver trumpets there was another factor in how they were led and guided these come out in chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2 the lord said to moses make two trumpets of hammered silver and use them for calling the community together and for having the camps set out. Now, God made these two, or told them to make, these two wonderful instruments, beaten silver. They were probably very beautiful, and they probably made a very sweet and good sound. The old ram's horns could be a bit rough, but these beautiful silver trumpets would make, well made, as they probably were, would make a beautiful sound. Now, what were they used for? Well, I'll summarise They were used to ensure unity and order. So that even though Moses was giving leadership, instead of Moses having to go around shouting to everybody, telling them what to do, there was a certain unity and order that came through the trumpets. And the trumpets were blown and everybody knew at the sound of the trumpet you move. And the trumpet set the sort of agenda. The trumpet brought a unity and an order You didn't decide for yourself even when to pack your tent up. You waited for the trumpet to blow, and out of that, you knew when to get ready and to move. That was one major use. But there were other things, perhaps you noticed. Verse 9 of chapter 10 tells us they were used in battle. They were used in battle. Warfare lay ahead, and blowing the trumpets would be a key sign in battle. 
It would call the people to battle, but it more profoundly seemed to call God to their aid. Now, it wasn't summoning God. He was with them. His cloud was with them. But it was somehow drawing, uh, I think probably raising their faith that they were God's people and he was with them, and somehow drawing God into the battle through the use of these trumpets, summoning him, as it were, bringing an expectancy of his intervention and fighting for them. There's a third thing we have mentioned in verse 10. They were used for celebration and rejoicing. They were used for just rejoicing and celebrating before God. You get phrases like, it is a day for you to sound the trumpets. Days for, for, for rejoicing. A day when you would remember what God had done for you and celebrate it together. They were declaring out that our God is a mighty God. He's with us. We love his presence. We rejoice in his presence. Now, I believe these silver trumpets have got something to say to us. I believe they're about the word of God and worship. I think you could probably say prayer is in there as well. It's very interesting. When I was preparing this, I read several commentaries. I thought of the word and worship. I wondered if it was prayer and the word. And several commentaries, one said they are symbols of praise and prayer. Another one, Matthew Henry, who wrote 300 years ago, by the way, he said they speak to us of the word and the spirit. Quite interesting uh, terminology from Matthew Henry. Matthew Poole, another Puritan writer, said they symbolize the preaching of God's word. Well, I'm happy to say word and worship for you tonight. I think prayer needs to be in the context of worship anyway. I think the word needs to be in the context of worship. There was something worship about these. They, they summoned God. They declared who these people were. They, they, they brought God's presence actively amongst them. But I think for us, and for me, I want to say it as a prophetic thing for you tonight, even if I wouldn't call this a strictly hermeneutical exercise, but prophetically, I think they are a picture of preaching the word and worshipping. Preaching the word and worshipping. These, these trumpets were made of silver. And silver always stands for redemption in the, in the Old Testament. Redemption silver. It was, a, it was the currency of redemption. When you redeemed slaves, when you redeemed lives, silver's involved. Redemption is often linked with silver. I think there's a big thing here. We need to stay emphasizing Jesus-centered preaching needs to be central to our church life, brothers and sisters. Whatever changes there are in culture, and we might embrace many of them, never get rid of or disrespect Christ-centered preaching. Because it is central to giving us direction in our movement. It's central to keeping us together, unified and in order. We need the silver trumpet of good preaching of God's word. We may be following the cloud, and we are. We may be looking to spiritual leadership to give us strategy and direction, and we do. But we must have clear proclamation of God's word. Because that's ultimately what pulls us together. We all hear that sound and respond. And we need Christ-centered, redemption-centered preaching. Frequently and often. It will be what unites us and gives us order. And I would say we need Jesus-centered worship with prayer laced in with it, like this particular commentator said, praise and prayer. I think we need to worship often. 
Worship, I make no apology for worshipping. Worship when we gather to, to, to pray. Worship first. Worship when we gather to hear the word. The preaching of God's word is vital, but we need the other silver trumpet of worship. Real, Jesus-centred worship. Worship is a twin trumpet. It's not like a warm-up for the word. They're both important. They're both important. Spirit-filled, Jesus-centred worship and spirit-filled, Jesus-centred preaching. We must have them in all our churches. We're a people on the move. We're a people that could be vulnerable to the enemy. But we're on an exciting, a very exciting adventure. God's got somewhere to take us. We are not static. We're moving. We're going somewhere. God's got plans that we have not yet seen. We need to be charismatic and spirit-led. It may be embarrassing. How do you describe how you're led by the Spirit? How do you describe to that non-Christian relative why you've changed your job? Why you work like stink and also lead a church and a house group? Or why you gave up your career to do this? Or why you moved to that church plant and took a less paid job? How do you explain those things? You say, well, God told me. He led me. And they just won't be very happy about it. You have to live with that. How do you sometimes explain the strategy or apparently odd strategy that that goes on in our church life? It's not that we're mad, it's we're following God. And sometimes the cloud just is a little bit puzzling. But that's how I want to be, don't you? I want to follow the cloud. But to do it well, I need to respect my leaders. I don't want chaos. Everybody's opinion of what the cloud's doing. Let's take a vote. Six people think it's moving east and four think it's moving west, so we'll go east. No, We've got to have spiritual leadership. But above all, we have to have two pure silver trumpets all through our church. Right, and If we're going to get to where God's got, going to get us to, we must maintain a, 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 a total pure integrity in preaching God's word and in worship, worshipping Jesus with deliberate purpose. It's a clear element. Worship unites us. Worship brings God's presence on the scene. It sort of summons him to us. It's part of our warfare to worship. We need worship and the word. Two beautiful silver trumpets constantly used to take us together to where God wants us to be. The Lord has given us a land of good things. We will press in and make them ours. That was a song we sang years ago, but I believe it's still true. We still need to press in and make ours what God has called us to. We're not yet there. We're not yet there. I don't know if, what what would you say? Well, John, what would you feel if you're there? Well, Caleb knew he was there when he was in the promised land, over the river, and he's standing on one of the mountains. And all I can say is I know I'm there when we've got scores and hundreds of people being saved when there are serious problems with controversy with the non-Christian world because they're getting very bothered about some of the things these Christians are doing and when we're actually having maybe some impact on even the laws of the land, probably through leading Christians doing stuff like a Wilberforce did once. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to see everything, but Caleb tasted quite a lot of it and stood on it. And we're not yet in our cities and in our villages and in our towns where God wants us to be. And we've got to stay moving with the Spirit, stay under spiritual authority and stay clearly listening to anointed preaching, Christ-centered preaching and worshipping in spirit and truth. Amen?
Amen. Let's do some of that as we finish.